You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, let's get started. We're going to continue our... Con- uh, our- consideration of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, feedback. So let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can pause and give you thanks for another day of life, and particularly for the Lord's Day, which you have set aside for your worship and our edification the glory of Christ, the good of the church. And we pray today that as we consider the bride of Christ, that the Holy Spirit will guide our discussion and help us to grow in our understanding and appreciation of this marvelous organization and organism, the Church of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so chapter 25, we're moving out of the ethical portion of the confession You know, all those things, the outgrowth of our salvation in Christ. And now we move into the ecclesiastical part, and we're looking at the church. A few preliminary comments. We the Greek word ekklesia, you probably heard that at one point or another. It's basically the word that we translate church. And it's derived from the word that means to call out. Ekklesia. And it was used uh, not just for the ecclesiastical uh, organization, but it was used for any assembly that had been called out and convened for any purpose. It was a Greek word, just for an assembly. Remember when the Ephesians rioted? Um, Demetrius was the leader of all those guys who made idols, and Paul came along and he told the girl, uh, he exercised the girl, and she was no longer able to get them business, and he was very mad, so he gathered them all together, and they had this riot, and for three hours they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and when the town clerk came, he said these things, he told them this is a bad, a wrong assembly, we might be charged ourselves by the Roman government for rioting, so when he had said these things, he dismissed the ecclesia. The assembly. All of that to say it's a Greek word that means assembly. Now the New Testament takes that word for an assembly of believers that are called out of the world by the gospel. So what we translate church, it's ecclesia. On this rock I'll build my ecclesia, called out assembly, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If he refuses to listen to them, this is in the whole area of discipline, tell it to the ecclesia, those who've been called out from the world to form my church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the ecclesia in Jerusalem. Finally, to the church, or the ecclesia of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So he's writing to a group of people who've been called out set apart for Christ, and that's ecclesia, the church. 
And so what we're looking at in this chapter is the nature of this church from both a divine and a human perspective. And we'll look at that especially in the first two sections. Any questions on Ecclesia? I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but if you have a question or comment. Yes, John? I, I think, wasn't there a debate uh, when the KJV was done because what they call it congregation, or uh, called church, because all the, the church is kind of a, 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 a derived word or a made-up word rather than just calling it a generic word of assembly. Assembly, right. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. If there, the debate on that particular church or congregation, something for me to look up. Thank you. Yeah, I, I don't know that. I'm, I'm, you may be right, because people have not always used the word church. So, okay. The invisibility of the church, section one. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof. So what's happening here is the confession is looking at the church from a Godward perspective. You remember how chapter 10 distinguished between the external call of the gospel, which goes out to the whole world, and the inward call of the Holy Spirit. When he attends that external call with his power and he draws them to Christ. So here, uh, when the former is issued to everybody through the preaching and teaching of the word of God, the other, the inward call, is enjoyed only by the elect. So what happens to the elect? Well, they're gathered together into the church, the called out assembly. When the Holy Spirit does his work of regeneration, enlightening the mind, renewing the will, drawing the affections. So the church can be considered under the same twofold aspect, the external call, the inward call, the visible church, the invisible church, okay? And viewed as invisible, this church consists of all the elect from every age of human history, past, present, future, those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, the church viewed as invisible, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Fascinating about that text. Jesus considers himself incomplete without the church. Stunning for us to consider. Uh, he's all sufficient as God. But as the mediator, he considers himself as incomplete. This is his fullness. And it means also that he fills the church which, with his presence. I'm with you always, he said. The, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there, Paul is referring to the church in its invisible aspect. He died for all the elect. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now that can be perceived both as visible and invisible. He is the head of the visible body, as we'll see. But he is the head and the husband of the church invisible. It goes on to say the universal church, this Catholic universal church, is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And those are biblical descriptions of the church. 
Uh, there is this mystical union between Christ and his bride. And the central analogy of that is marriage. It's no surprise that we just got done talking about marriage. It's the body, and he is the head. And as I said, it is the fullness. Any questions on section one? We're going to continue in this, but okay. It's sad because in our day and age, I think the church is viewed with far less esteem than it should. And sometimes it's the church's fault. We have failed. We haven't lived up to our profession. But according to scripture, the church is an amazing thing. So we continue. <clears throat> Some have finished their course. They're in heaven. While others continue the fight on earth, and some have yet to be born, the elect. So we distinguish between the church militant and the church triumphant. Militant meaning that they continue the fight. They're engaged in spiritual warfare against sin and evil. So if you hear those words, church militant, church triumphant, those who've triumphed, who have their reward, who are in the rest of God, that's the distinction that's being made. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he's referring to the church militant. We struggle. It is a fight. And every time you and I resist sin, it's a little teeny triumph because we're struggling. But God says you'll have the victory. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're fighting against sin within and evil without. That's the church militant. It's a fight, and we're in a war. The members of the church triumphant are in heaven, and they have entered their eternal rest. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly, ecclesia, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So you can see this, the New Testament is comfortable just look, looking at the church from either aspect. We're not talking about two churches here. It's one church, but we look at it from different aspects. The church invisible that God sees <clears throat> all the elect. The church visible that we see on earth. The church invisible cannot be discovered by sense because its qualifications are internal. The calling of the spirit. I can't read your heart. I have to take you at your word. When you profess faith in Christ, you're a Christian. I treat you as a Christian. Until such time, you prove otherwise. So we have a credible and intelligent profession of faith. This is composed of those called by divine grace into the fellowship of Christ and sanctified by the truth, as Jesus says in his high priestly prayer. And however distant in place, however diversified in circumstances, all of the elect are united to Jesus as the head of the body. It reaches from one end of the earth to the other and from the beginning of time to the very end. The church in its invisible aspect, the elect. Any comments or questions on that? Section 1. When we get into Section 2, this is where I think, I think a lot of modern evangelicals would say, of course, 
the invisible church. That's the church. I love Jesus. Everybody who loves Jesus, that's the church. And in one sense, they're right. But I think they fail to understand the church in its visible aspect, that it's very important. And Jesus reigns and rules by his church on earth. So we'll see the visibility. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, it's not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children. So this church invisible that we've looked at, it manifests itself in the world and becomes visible to mankind. And it consists of those throughout the whole world who at the present time are member of, members of Christ's body. So if somebody says, well, Jesus reigns and he has a kingdom, where can I see it? I want to see Christ's kingdom. And you can say, well, there's an expression of it right there, the visible church. Jesus is reigning by his officers, his laws, his censures, and his worship. There's a visible expression of the kingdom. It can be observed by our senses. Its members are known. Its assemblies are public. Anybody can walk in, supposedly. God has appointed in the church, visible, apostles, prophets, teachers, and so forth. So you can identify it. This is the visibility of the church. Like any other earthly society, it can be identified by observation, and it is the church of Christ. Now, we're going to go on in the latter sections to talk about purity, impurity, synagogue of Satan, that kind of thing. But the nature of the church, it's visible. It has a visible aspect to it. Its members are living, and with more or less faithfulness, they embrace the gospel and they bear spiritual fruit. So we should be able to see the love that we have for one another, and the world will say, oh, look at how they love one another. And it proves they're disciples of Jesus. But the visible church, we can't identify, make it identical with the elect, but those who profess the true religion. What's happening here is that hypocrites, and that covers a broad range of people, hypocrites often join themselves to the body of believers, but they will not comp com comprise the church. They're not of the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us, said John. Satan's work is destructive and it's imitative only. He's not creative. He has counterfeits and he can destroy. Hypocrites cannot manifest the marks of the church. They cannot bear spiritual fruit. So they can be in our number. They can try to profess openly and publicly and externally the true faith, but it's not genuine in their hearts. So we don't identify the church in its visible aspect with the church from its invisible perspective. Does that make sense? And we'll look a little bit more at this, this concept in the next slide. It puzzles some that God would ordain the visible church to include hypocrites. Why on earth would he do that? <laughs> Why would he allow people who aren't sincere to be members of the visible church? But you see, our perplexity and confusion should never be the criterion of truth or falsehood. I'm not sure why he does it, but he does. And as we'll see, Judas is a perfect example. He was one of the 12. 
God commanded both Jacob and Esau to be circumcised and admitted into the visible church. Well, we know that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Why would he do that? I don't know. But in his infinite wisdom, that's how he set it up. The visible church on earth has both sincere and insincere believers. And there is no perfectly pure church on earth. There's no church where everybody is part of the elect. We know that. So scripture refers to the place from which Judas turned aside. He was in the visible church. He was numbered among the apostles. And yet he was insincere. G.I. Williamson says this, the true church becomes visible not by an identification of persons, this is all the true church right here, but by an identification of presence, by a disclosure of certain things that true believers will do. We profess Jesus as the only Savior of the world, the only mediator between God and men. And where that profession is made, that's the true church. There may be those who are associating themselves outwardly with that, but they're not true members of the church invisible. 25 goes on to say, is the kingdom, the visible church, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. All kinds of red flags goes up for the modern evangelical. What are you talking about? You mean the church is equated with salvation? No. That's not what we're saying. God has not revealed his intent to save anybody apart from the personal knowledge of Christ Jesus. He has stated emphatically that those who deny his son before men will not be saved. We know that to be true. Paul set forth the terms of salvation as confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart. So in some way, Every true believer will confess Jesus before man and express his faith or her faith publicly. <clears throat> Providentially, that person will find a way to profess the faith, right? Not just internally in the heart, but give vent to it with the mouth. And ordinarily, God requires believers to join the church and take on the badges of discipleship. Elder Van Drunen oftentimes tells us that salvation is past, present, and future, right? We, we, we are saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. And all of those, three of those are true. So ordinarily, we're being saved as we associate ourselves with the church and the ordinary means of grace. Now, does that mean that God can't save somebody who's on a desert island? A bottle washes up with a portion of scripture and they're saved? Of course not. He can save that person. Ordinarily, this is how he saves. So you have no reason to expect, if you're a genuine Christian and you absent yourself from the visible church, consciously and willfully, there's no reason to expect that you're truly saved. If you have the opportunity to join yourself with the small flock of Christ, the despised people of God, and you're unwilling, he says, if you don't profess me before men, I will not profess you before my Father in heaven. Some people don't have that opportunity, and he understands. But for those of us who have the opportunity, that's what we're called to do. Any questions on that? I expect many. Mary Alice? Um, just like, yeah, 
but in my life. Okay. In professing <laughs> him, that doesn't just have to be in the church. No. You profess him out there into the world and everybody you come into contact with. But the point is obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? And he commands us to join the church. Now, again, when I was a new Christian, I had no idea. And so he's gracious. He understands that we're responsible for the light we're given. And in our day and age, the church, as I said, is demeaned. It it's, has low esteem. He's gracious. But the point is that his word does teach us this is what you're supposed to do as a Christian. You associate yourself with other believers under the head, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 17. Submit yourself to your elders. Well, how do you do that? You can't do it to Charles Stanley on the, on the TV. You might, you might enjoy that, but you're not submitting yourself to your leaders. John, you had a question. Oh, I was just thinking about the different times in Scripture where people are saying, well, Pharisees follow Jesus privately. You have some examples of private, or maybe in, say, Turkey, where people might come to faith, but to reveal their faith would mean they're kicked out of their family, they're doing their jobs, obviously. And the the higher cost in both scriptural time and also now in the broader world of right. confessing faith. Yeah. And Joseph. People still do it. I mean, like, we know people who risk their lives right. to assemble and would come secretly into their, you know, apartment in Iran one at a time over the course of a couple hours so that they would be able to meet together. Like, it's so, it, that is a sign to all that they are actually really Christian. Yeah. No, I get it. It's, it's very hard. Both Joseph and Nicodemus were secret at the beginning, but you'll notice that they came and took the body of Jesus at the end. And I know, and who am I to say, but I think there comes a point when you do have to make it somewhat public. The early Christians met in the catacombs because of the same reason. There was danger. I don't blame them. But they did come together, and that's the point. I think Jesus would say to us, look, in your situation, if it ever gets to the point where you will have to pay a heavy cost. My steadfast life, my steadfast heart, Mark? Um, just back up to um, the, the issue between the visible and invisible church. You know, the parable of the, the weeds or the tares is a, is yeah. a highlight that they're going to both grow and at the final judgment there will be the separation. Right. Um, and then you always taught I thought this was a great example of how can somebody be your true friend and not love your bride. Yeah, that's right. And I see that parallel between loving Christ and loving the bride and church. Um, A lot of people will say, well, I I just profess Christ. I don't need the church. And I think that's a dichotomy that we find nowhere in Scripture. Right. And somebody would respond and say, well, I do love the church. I love every Jesus follower. But they're talking about the church invisible. And a John would come along and say, well, how can you love God who you don't see and not love the brother who you do see? So there is this visibility aspect to our faith, right? We need to show the fruits. We're always called to be in Christ and social. Our faith is a social faith. We're called to love each other in this body. Many of us would not associate with one another if it weren't for the church. (laughs) Right? You know, 
Manny? I just have a question for a clarification. That's all right. So um, you talk about visible, invisible church, new covenant, and then older covenants. Um, Christ is the head of the church, visible in the new covenant. He's our mediator of the new covenant. And he's also the mediator of the covenant of grace, so he's the mediator of the invisible church throughout ages. But would you say that at the time of Jacob and Esau, Christ was not the head of the church, visible? No, he was the head. <clears throat> so, but he was not the mediator of the visible church. He was, in that case, Abraham. Well, he reigns. He reigns supreme as the pre-incarnate Christ. And his, the efficacy of his work on the cross extends back as well as forward. So he was the head based upon his work, certainty of his work on the cross. Not just forward, backward. This is, this is why we say that Adam was saved the same way you and I are. Because his work extends back. Correct. His reign extends back. So as, it, it's trans-historical, right? From our perspective, you know, it's not until the cross, but from the heavenly perspective, it's both ways. He's the head. He's the only mediator between God and men, both for David, Adam, Samuel, and me. The only mediator. Salvation is by the faith in Christ alone. So the coming Messiah, just as much. I know it's, kind of, it's harder for us to see that, but it is true. He is the head. The confession goes on to talk about the ordinances to this visible or Catholic visible church. Christ has given the ministry oracles, ordinances of God, for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world. So both evangelism and sanctification, Christ uses the church to gather his people and to build them up. He appointed the standing ministry as a means of converting sinners and sanctifying believers. This is the ordinary means. Now, you know, if Greg goes out and talks to his friend and he's converted and they meet one-on-one -on -one for three years and the guy never darkens the door of a church, he's saved, he's being edified and discipled. But that's not ordinary because he's supposed to join himself to the body believers, as we said. That's the ordinary method. That's the biblical method. There's no maverick Christianity. We need each other. We need the diversity of gifts. We need to show our love for God's people. He entrusted to the visible church the inspired infallible scriptures as the rule of faith and practice. This is, we have the keys of the kingdom, the church. And what do the keys do? They let in, they shut out. Um, visibly, and again, I'm not an expert, but especially in Islamic countries, in the context that John and Julie were talking about, as I understand it, it's up until the point of baptism that they continue to reason with you and try their hardest. But once you're baptized, once you make that visible profession of faith, that's it. You're gone. As far as they're concerned, you're dead. Or you should be. Baptism is the visible sign that you have associated yourself now with the visible church and you're an apostate. So Christ ordained the ordinances, preaching, praying, singing, sacraments, and so forth as the means to save the elect. And in this way, he gathers them from the world. He prepares the saints who've been gathered. 
He is edifying us. He's building us up. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers that threw away the bad. Many have interpreted that parable as the visible church doing its work in its public ministry in the world and gathering, right? And at the end of time, the hypocrites will be set on the left and the elect on the right. It goes on to say, does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. These ordinances that he's given to the church are utterly worthless. I say that with reverence, without the spirit. You can have the best sermon you want. Ask Pastor Pilon. I mean, we've laid eggs and God uses it. And we said, oh, that was great. And nothing, you know, crickets. So it's the spirit. The success of the endeavor of the church depends upon the promise of Christ and the power of his spirit. We depend on him. And God forbid that we would ever boast in ourselves for anything that goes on in the church. All that the Father gave to Christ before the foundation of the world will come to him and not one of them will be lost. Not one. Any comments on the ordinances of Christ? Questions? Okay. The purity. This Catholic church has been sometimes, they're talking about the visible aspect, sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches which are members thereof are more or less pure. So a church's purity, we find, is a matter of degree, so that it varies at different times and in different places. It's a continuum, more pure, less pure. The visible church is not always equally flourishing and equally conspicuous in the world. We've seen that in history. The catacombs, the early church, as you mentioned. Sometimes in particular places, you don't even know if there is a church. What did, uh, was it Elijah? Oh, Lord, I'm the only one left. No, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He couldn't see them. They were underground. So it waxes and wanes. Sometimes the church shines brightly. Sometimes it's obscured and scarcely discernible. Her numbers might be reduced. They can be widely scattered. They might hide from persecution, as we've said. But the idea is, as we'll see, the perpetuity of the church, there's always a witness to God. So pervasive was the idolatry and so fierce the persecution, Elijah thought he was the only worshiper They've forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he's wallowing in his own self-pity. But God said, I do have 7,000 left. So obscure may be the witness of a church that is oppressed by persecution or corrupted by errors. That's what the confession is teaching us. So that it is a continuum. Um, it's a matter of degree. It goes on, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So, insofar as the church is doing this, practicing these things faithfully, it's visible. Insofar as, or it's pure. Insofar as she's not doing them, it's not pure. 
It depends on the truth preached, sacraments administered, and worship rendered. Any questions or comments on the purity? Carolyn? I was just wondering about, in light of persecution of the church, and if it, there are some, obviously, Christians who have to go underground and have home churches, what would you do about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper if it requires an elder <clears throat> to administer the Lord's Supper, would you have to forego that particular sacrament? As far as we believe, yes. Okay. But I'm convinced that God is able to give the grace needed through the ordinances allowed. So, for example, some would argue, well, you're withholding the supper from these young children, and you're not giving them all the grace that they can get. And we'd say, no. God knows what they need. And he can give them all the grace that they need through the ordinances that they're capable of uh, using. Preaching of the word. And when they get to a certain age and they profess their faith, God has brought them to the point where they can then, in mature Christian faith, partake of the supper. And he enhances it. But let's not limit God and his grace by the external means. You know, last week we talked about the, uh, the guy who had that little piece of paper. The bread of heaven. He can use that. That's the grace that he needed, right? So, I mean, I, I understand that there are extraordinary circumstances, um, but we do believe that it needs to be a lawfully ordained minister of the church. These are entrusted to the church, and he is a representative that has that responsibility. Would that be the same for preaching the word as well? Yeah, in a sense, we can exhort. The elder can exhort, or somebody else can exhort, like Philip, the deacon. So we would call that exhorting. It's a, a verbal distinction that's, that highlights the idea that the regular standing ministry is entrusted to the ministers of Christ. But that doesn't mean a person can't preach or exhort like Philip did. You know, In an extraordinary circumstance, you might say, okay, I have the word. I am going to edify these believers. And we'd say God will use that. You're exhorting them. But we wouldn't classify that as the standing ministry in the same way that we would say a pulpit ministry. It just highlights the idea that this is Christ's ordinary way of doing things. John? Yeah, Philip also did baptized. Yeah, in that, in that transition period, there were all kinds of things going on, as we'll see today. <laughs> but he did baptize the Ethiopian eunuch. You're right. So I would say he's an evangelist because later it does say he's an evangelist. It says Philip the evangelist and his seven daughters. Was it seven daughters? Prophetesses. So we have in the PCA, and I'm not sure Jason and I go back and forth on this. An evangelist has the power of session. So if I ordain you as an evangelist, the presbytery ordains you. You can go into a foreign country and you have the power to preach, administer the sacraments, and appoint elders. You have the power of presbytery. That's a lot of power to give one person. Mark? Especially in the early church, uh, I think we need to remember the difference between something that's descriptive and something that's prescriptive. Right. Very good point. Excellent point. That's really important during these transitional periods. You know, was it prescriptive or descriptive that we should uh, circumcise everyone at age 40 like Abraham, right? Right. Very good point. And that's, that's so helpful in uh, interpreting Scripture, especially the New Testament. Like we'll see today, 
the Samaritans believed, were baptized, then filled with the Holy Spirit later. And some have looked at that as, well, that's a second blessing right there. No, it's descriptive. It's the Pentecost moving out. Once it's moved out to the end of the world, Rome, now you believe and you're filled with the Spirit instantaneously. Perpetuity, the purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error. Some have so degenerated as become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. And there are times when the visible church is so obscure it's barely discernible, sometimes in the Middle Ages, for example. They may become so corrupt that it's considered apostate. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. When he says Jews there, he means true Jews, believers. They've become so corrupt, they don't preach the gospel, they're a synagogue of Satan. They're doing the work of the devil. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they'll learn that I have loved you. But there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Never in all of history has the world been without the church of Jesus Christ. God will not leave himself without witness. Our empires have come and gone. The church will continue. But this promise is not for a particular church. This church might be gone in 100 years, 20 years, whatever. This particular church. But the visible church will always be there. And that's important because some, some have taught erroneously that this promise is for my church. No, it's not. God will not leave himself without witness providentially with seasons and ecclesiastically with preaching. Any questions on the perpetuity? Okay. Oh, yes, Gretchen? No. So are they yours or did you get them from another source? Well, they're mine, but it's kind of based upon what's in the section. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah. I hesitate to take responsibility for them because it may be wrong. I don't know. This one is good. The head of the church. <laughs> There's no other head. You see right there. There's no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be heard thereof. Now, in the context, you remember they're fighting with the Jesuits. Rome has been that which they've come out of. So this is on the forefront of their debates. Roman Catholicism teaches that the Pope, as the successor of Peter, is the vicegerent of Christ on earth. When he speaks from the chair, when he speaks officially, it's ex cathedra. He's speaking for Christ, infallible. The problem is you have different popes contradicting each other. How does that happen? But it does. Erastians claim that the supreme civil magistrate is the head of the church. So Henry VIII, when they broke off from the Roman Catholic Church, they made Henry the head of the church, so that he could divorce his wife, lawfully. In contrast, the confession acknowledges Jesus alone. He is the head of the body of the church, all things under his feet. 
To him belongs authority to enact laws, appoint officers, set qualifications, prescribe censures. The church invisible, he's head. He governs it from beginning to end, to answer Manny's question. He's the head from beginning to end of the invisible church. He is the head from whom the whole body, in every place, in every time, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. When this was written, the Pope's claim to the crown privileges of Christ were at the forefront, as I said. But the rock on which the church is built is not Peter, but Peter's confession, Christ. So there's one more slide. The original confession had this in addition. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. Now this is one of those unique places in the confession where the divines went way beyond. And they interpreted prophecy specifically. They don't normally do that. They're normally pretty reserved. Here, because this was so big in their view, they identified the Pope as the Antichrist. And our, our version has eliminated this section, this statement. They thought it was the embodiment of the anti-Christian spirit, but the word Antichrist occurs several times and can be used for many persons, not just one. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Many have come. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. So the idea is that there is this anti-Christian spirit all around us, and it's expressing itself in various ways, one of which is the Pope. So if they would have said, is anti-Christian, I think it would have been more consistent with their theology. But they identified him as that man that Paul talks about in Colossians, I think it is. Jim? What if you changed that a little bit and you said that he is an antichrist? Right, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. They would say that that's true. And I don't know the man's heart. We're not talking about the man individually. We're talking about the institution of the papacy. And they would say yes. And we would say yes. That's anti-Christian. Jesus is the only head of the church, not the Pope. Um, so anti-Christ is used in oh, 2 Thessalonians 2. The coming of the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. Paul is specifically talking there about what happens in the last days. And they're equating that prophecy with the Pope. Um, so I think they... They, to be charitable, we can say that the assembly considered the papal system, to, to Jim's point, in spirit, form, and effect to be anti-Christian, but that, that's not what they said. It is that antichrist. So I think it's wise that we got rid of that section. Um, yeah, that's wrong. It's not the 1789. Oh, yeah, well, we adopted the 1789 revision, and then we deleted this final clause. The OPC did it in 38, or 36. The Bible Presbyterian Church did it in 38. And the PCA did it in 1973. Struck this clause. Any questions on that? Okay. Well, the church. That's the church. Good. Right on time. Let's close with prayer. 
Father, we thank you for the Church of Jesus Christ. What a privilege for us to be members of it. We thank you for the means of grace and the opportunity we have publicly and corporately to worship, draw near to your throne of grace. And we pray that now as we prepare to do that, your spirit would be at work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.